um, what seems like a hundred years ago, I was 17 years old. You laugh because you understand. And uh, I had been spending some time, I've shared a bit of this story with, with you before, I had spent some time uh, sailing, probably from the time I was 13 or 14 I started sailing a little. At 15, or just before my 15th birthday, <coughs> started working on a boat, um, not working as a, uh, as a sailor, but working as a grunt laborer, on a boat that was uh, owned by uh, our pathfinder uh, counselor and our uh, youth Sabbath school teacher. He needed... Uh, grunt labor, and a couple of us from the youth group needed work, so it was good, good matching. So we spent our summers for the next couple of years taking little tiny circles of teak, shoving them into holes, shaving them off very carefully, sanding them down, and resurfacing the varnish. Do you have any idea how many tiny screw holes there are on a 35-foot boat? A lot. And when we were finished with that job, usually something would have gone awry on deck, and, you know, salt water's hard on, a, on wood, and so we would spend our time on deck sanding off old varnish and putting on new varnish being very careful not to get varnish over on the gel coat and destroy that beautiful white sheen that was on the deck. As a reward, we were, we were paid, but the greater reward was that we sailed most weekends. We would go out on a Sunday morning early. We'd uh, leave at first San Leandro Harbor, which was a problem because it took a long time to get out into the main part of the bay. And we would sail around the San Francisco Bay. Later, we would be a little closer in Alameda, and it was easier. But we would get out into the main water of the bay. And they say if you can sail in the San Francisco Bay, you can sail anywhere in the world. Because the currents, the winds, it's an unpredictable place to sail. You'll go from being in a, in a 25-knot wind on, on a, a broad reach to the wind wrapping around an island and suddenly changing direction or going completely dead in the lee of of San Francisco, changing its direction or stopping for the afternoon. It's just lots and lots and lots of different things. So we got a lot of experience. Toward uh, that summer of my 17th year, I turned 17 in June, and so I was probably 16 and almost 17, um, this friend of ours had take, taken this boat and sailed it to, uh, to Hawaii. Now, I don't know what you know about the currents in the Pacific, but if you're going to Hawaii, that's the easy route. About 17 days straight out of San Francisco, you, you, you sail southwest, and you pick a spot out in the ocean, you'll, you hit it. It's kind of how it works. It's a big ocean, small spots to hit. Coming back, you have to go around the summer Pacific high, which you know as Californians, it keeps us warm. It protects us against all the weather that's coming out of the Alaskan 
Gulf and it keeps, keeps us from having a lot of cool weather in the summertime. Well, that Pacific High sits out there and keeps wind from moving as well. And so you don't sail through that thing. You sail around it. So the trip back is a thousand miles straight north and hang a right. Watch for the coast when you get out for about another 15 days and you'll be somewhere near where you need to be. That glorious adventure left me with some experiences in life that, reflecting back, have continued to enrich me. This morning, as we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we're actually in the conclusion. When we arrive in the conclusion, Jesus is is repeating himself in in seg- segments of three, and we, we'll kind of touch a little bit on that, but I, the last three... He begins with, narrow is the gate and straight the path that leads to life, and few there are that find it. I can remember we were 25 days out from Hawaii, which means it's been 25 days since we've seen anything approximating land. So the reality is you're completely going by faith, that the sun is where it needs to be, that your sextant shot is working. This is, this, this, for those of you younger than 40, this predates global positioning satellites for normal Americans. You couldn't whip out your phone and figure out where you were. So we had to actually take a sextant, which is uh, an ancient sailing instrument, old sailing instrument, and allow you to take a shot of the sun, figure out where you were, don't worry about it, but that's how you find your way. And then we had to go to the chart, and through some mathematical calculations, finally, sixth grade math was paying off. (laughs) Do some adding, do some subtracting, correct for where we were in the world and the time of year, and put a little X on the chart. And just assume that that X was in the right place. If your math was right, and you'd done a good job sighting the sun and watching the arc of the sun at noon, and you got a good, clear picture of that moment when the sun passed overhead, you're okay. Now, the good news for us is we're out in the middle of the Pacific. There's not a whole lot to run into. One day, the, uh, th- there were several of us taking this, working on these shots during the day, and one of the days we had already made our our turn, and we were heading east toward the coast. And on one of those days, the captain who had the most experience with the sextant, and he has a a, a degree in physics, so he's probably a better mathematician, made a mistake. And so he put an X where he thought we were, And when you do that, you addressed your course each day in relationship to that X. And the next day, we took our shot at noon. Now, honestly, I had looked at it, and some others had looked at it. Those of us on the minority report who were not as experienced and not as good mathematicians thought that he had made a mistake. But who were we to question him? I was 17. The other guy who questioned it was 18. Neither of us felt that we really had the 
what's the word they used that became famous if, uh, in, during the Bush administration? Uh, gravitas, to question his authority. The next day, when we took our shot, we traveled about 100 miles, 120 miles that, ne- that day. We discovered that we were quite a bit southwest of where we were supposed to be because the boss had made a mistake. I learned that day that you should always pay attention to the minority report. It may not be correct, but you should at least know if it is or it isn't. We made the corrections of the course, got back on course, and we, have, we plotted that course on our chart. So our chart was a, a part of the, the historical record of our trip. So each day we would put an X, draw a line between the last one. And so in this case, it goes straight north, nice and straight. Hangs the right, it's supposed to right, and it's supposed to take this long arch to find a mile and a half, or a, a less than mile wild, wide opening in the state of California after 3,000 miles. And the chart goes along, makes a dip, returns, and then goes back to its place. There's like a little tooth there in our trip. When I was thinking about this narrow gate, it made me realize it's kind of a long shot to travel without great landmarks for 3,000 miles and hit an opening a mile and a half or a mile wide. It's, it's really kind of a long shot. On the 25th day, after some storms on the 22nd and 23rd day, we knew we should be close. We started to hear radio stations out of the Bay Area, which was really good news. KNBR carries as far out to the ocean as it carries up into the mountains. So we started tuning in and catching some radio stations, trying to triangulate our, our relationship to the land. And on that 26th day, having not seen anything for the first 25 since we left Hawaii, the two youngest of us climbed the mast and got on the spreaders. Spreaders, um, you look at a mast, it's that post that goes straight up in the middle of a boat, right? And then you have those two bars that stick out, the cables run up, catch those bars, then go into the mast. Anybody visualizing that? Should I put pictures up on the screen? We, we climbed up to the spreaders so we could see further over the horizon and began to watch for that little gate, the opening. We knew that the first things we should see would be the tall spires of the Golden Gate Bridge. And we hoped that San Francisco wasn't socked in with, with clouds that day so we couldn't see anything. And much to our pleasure, about the middle of that afternoon we could see the Golden Gate appear on the horizon. I learned that day to trust your instruments. Even when you need to make a course correction. To pay attention to what's in front of you. Keep your eyes open. We sailed along the rest of that afternoon, getting more and more excited as we got closer and closer, as the bridge got taller and taller. And bits and pieces of the peninsulas started to show up on the horizon. And there was probably very few days prior to marriage and children of my young life and my life after that that were as joyful as 
was that experience when you finally came under the Golden Gate Bridge. Jesus says we're shooting for a narrow opening, a, a kind of a small gate in a big expanse of possibilities. As he wraps up this sermon, having turned the, the world on its ear, the religious world on its ear, even a lot of the Roman philosophies and cultural norms on their ear, as he wraps this sermon up, the first thing he says is the target you're shooting for is a little narrow. It's, it's a small one. And all the other possibilities out there aren't helpful, aren't good. He said, there are few who find this space. Today I want to talk about finding the gate. Finding the gate. Let's pray. Father God, we are blessed. So blessed to have your word. I pray as we spend some time moving quickly through sermon from the lips of God, that we would have your leadership, that we would each individually know the guidance of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have to do a summary because this is is a sermon that was preached. And so we have to summarize. We can't just jump into the middle of a sermon and and claim that's what it's talking about. Very often, that's the problem. Somebody will quote a sermon out of context, and it'll sound like something completely different. So we need some context on what Jesus is talking about. And so I'm just going to go quickly through. I promise I'm going to go quickly through. Preacher quickly is different from person quickly, but I'm going to go as quickly as a preacher can go through this very important sermon. And I'm just going to touch on the first of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, Jesus really sort of twists the whole world's understanding of religion. And I say the whole world because it certainly affects the way Jewish people looked at religion, but it also would affect the Greek and the Roman culture and the way they understood religion. It tweaks everything when Jesus starts to twerk this. We talked about this. I know it's been a long time ago. We, we talked about it before Christmas and before we took the break to talk about Christmas and before the, we talked about prayer at the beginning of the year. So we've, we've had a lot of things go on. A lot of water goes under this bridge since we started. But I'm going to take you back to the beginning. That in those Beatitudes, Jesus describes the process of salvation. He describes that opening of longing in a person's heart that leads them to a desire to follow God. And he describes that process culminating in that relationship and that connectedness. But he begins by saying, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Remember the R is supplied. Blessed R. That R is always supplied. We're, look, we're used to this thing saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. But the R is supplied. If you look in your Bible, you'll see it's in italics, which means it's a supplied word. It's not there in the original language. This is trying to say what the Bible is saying. This is supposed to be saying, it's awesome. It's amazing. It's fantastic. It's wonderful when somebody recognizes their spiritual poverty. Because only in recognizing your spiritual poverty do you turn to the one who has the answer to that problem. There's only one answer, and it's God. There's only one answer, and that's that relationship with Him. 
God blesses those who are poor in spirit when they realize their spiritual poverty, when they realize their need for Him, and the kingdom of heaven is there. And if your memory is really good, you remember that He opens by saying, as soon as you turn for home, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And He closes by saying, when you arrive at spiritual maturity, the kingdom of heaven is yours. He's enveloping this process in the assurance of salvation. You remember? You remember? When the prodigal son turned for home, God's grace covered him. When you, de- when you make your first thought of heaven and first turn toward God, His grace reaches out and covers you. He's not waiting for you to get your stuff together. He hands you the assurance of His kingdom from the first step. There's a lot more to be said, but we're going preacher fast. Second part of this summary Jesus then, moving on after the Beatitudes, he starts talking about the Mosaic Law, and he goes through, bang, 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 through several of the pieces of the Mosaic Law. He says that your, your spirituality, your righteousness, has to be better than the standard set by the Pharisees and the scribes, and he starts talking about how that might function. Jesus raises the standard of righteousness from the attainable baby steps. We just talked about this. From the attainable baby sets that have been, steps that have been set up by the scribes and the Pharisees, And he says, no, 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 this must be full transformation of the heart. The righteousness standard is a new heart. A heart that is like God. A heart that beats in concert with God's. A heart that connects to the attitudes, values, vows, perfect understanding of God. He says the Pharisees have dumbed down and restricted the the, the commands of God to these little baby steps which they have found a way to be attainable. Frankly, you have to do that when you follow legalism as your pattern. Stay with me on this. You have to dumb down the requirements of God in order to be a legalist. You have to simplify them into human attainable marks in order to be a legalist. You have to. Because the stretch of becoming like God, of being Christ-like, is so higher than our reach that we can only go there under the grace of God and only go there when we fall on our knees recognizing our spiritual poverty. When you choose to do it on your own, when you think you can attain it on your own, the only way you can do that is to break it down into steps, bite-sized pieces that you can handle for yourself. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done. That's why Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It has to be bigger. It has to be better. It has to be more impactful. Because if it's not, it's going to be this weird little, little spiritual sandwich you get a bite of every day. And you just keep going until you get the thing done. And you go, good, I'm home. God has to save me. And then you're in charge of what God does. And that makes you, of course, God. Legalism is the ultimate answer to Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve. You could be like God. You could be like God. And so the Pharisees had made it bite size. Lots of bites, but bite size. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you attain perfection? One bite at a time. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't understand the standard of perfection. You don't understand what you're shooting for. You think it's, you thinking that perfection is, is actually keeping all these regulations perfectly. Nope, it's not what's going on. Perfection is a heart that beats like God's. Perfection is loving your enemy. Jesus raises the standard 
to the highest possible attainment. When you when he talks about you shouldn't be you 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 shouldn't be uh, having a relationship outside of that relationship of your marriage, he says no no no. We're not just talking about that. We're talking about even thinking about it. We're talking about your heart turning towards some other person. We're not just talking about your actions here. We're talking about your heart. When I tell you, you know, not to kill, I'm not talking about just not murdering somebody. I'm just, I'm actually talking about not treating anybody with disdain. Not calling anybody a fool. So we start talking about the heart. He raises it to heart transformational perfection. And he says, you guys think you can make this on your own? Really? It's the speech in Job 40 when God turns to Job and he says, if you can put the oceans in in its place, if you can hang the stars in the heavens, then I, God, will also agree that you can save yourself by your right hand. What's the argument stating? You cannot save yourself. You can't. You need me. You need the hand. His statement of absolute perfection here and in other places is about loving your enemy. What is the highest reach of love? It's not loving your family, not loving your grandkids. It's not loving your wife. It is loving your enemy. And everybody in the culture said, it's okay to hate your enemy. They're your enemy. And Jesus said, no. You want to be like God? Love your enemy. Three points, so you know it's a sermon because there's three points. Jesus then moves on to personal practice. We talked about this just last week. Jesus moves to personal practice. How your faith is performed. And he starts talking about the way people are doing it. They, they're, they're out there on the stage. They, they're demonstrating their, their faithfulness with the way they give. They blow trumpets before they pour their offerings in. And they... They, they call of groups together and shout and get, get, a, get an audience before they give to the poor. They make an audience before they pray. Everything's about them being seen, being spiritual. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. It's about you taking your spirituality off the stage and into the closet where God can do fantastic things, transformative things in your heart when it's just between the two of you. Because what are we looking for? Changed heart. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Transition point. For those of you who are so familiar with this that you're anticipating my next point, I'm sorry for for moving you along, but I I need to get you all the way through. Transition point. He demonstrates how we should pray. For those of you who are assuming that, that when he said uh, you're, you must be perfect even as your Father in Heaven is perfect, that he had just set another attainable standard for you to break down into little bites that you could climb, he assumes you're going to need forgiveness in this prayer. The assumption of forgiveness is the assumption of sin. The assumption of sin is the assumption of a lack of perfection. Do you understand the logic? The assumption of the need for forgiveness is the assumption of sin. The assumption of sin is the assumption that you're not going to get to the standard he set for you. 
What do you do when you can't make it on your own? What does a believer do? What does a follower of Jesus do when they finally realize their spiritual poverty? They go to the only one who has spiritual strength. They fall on their face in front of God and they ask for his help. You following this? Then he goes two treasuries, two trees, two lords. See, you thought preachers only did this as a modern thing. This sets of three? Oh no, this is not new with us. This is a Jesus thing. We got two treasuries. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You can have a treasure on earth, you can have a treasure in heaven. Choose heaven. Good better idea. Two trees. There are, you can know these people by their you know by their fruits, these trees, right? The good fruit, the bad good tree, the bad fruit, the bad tree. Choose a good tree. Two lords. You can all you can either serve mammon, your 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 possessions, your stuff, or you can serve God. Choose God. Two, two, two. See it? I love the fact that this still plays out. And then he says, live like this. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry about your stuff for the day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough worry for the day. Don't worry. Don't stress over things. Trust me. Trust me. Don't worry. Trust. The theme in the New Testament is have faith, believe, trust God. Over and over and over, this theme keeps coming. Do you know where the theme starts? Adam and Eve one day walked up to a tree and a snake started talking to them. What should you do when a snake starts to talk to you? Run away. Run away. If a bush that's on fire starts talking to you, hang back for a minute and see who that is. You might want to answer that phone, but if a snake starts talking to you, go the other direction. And as they began to have this conversation, they extended trust, faith, to the devil and removed trust faith from God. And God's been trying to get us to reestablish that relationship ever since. The New Testament is simply bringing it to fruition and Jesus is doing it in this sermon. Don't worry. Don't judge. Pray. Pray continually. Come to me when you find yourself at the end of your rope. When you recognize your spiritual poverty, come to me. And if you keep knocking on my door, I'll answer. Do you get the picture? This we pull, we extract this comment about prayer out of this sermon, and we put it in. We apply it to everything else. If that were true, when Paul prayed three times to God, wouldn't he have gotten the answer? If that were true, when Jesus prayed three times in the garden, wouldn't he have gotten the answer he wanted? So this isn't about you getting the answer you want every time. This is not the slot machine answer about God. This is not the number of coins you put in. This is not keep hammering coins away till you get what you want. It's not what this is saying. This is in the context of your spiritual poverty when you realize your spiritual poverty. Knock on my door. I will always answer that. When you recognize your spiritual nature is broken, knock on my door and I will answer you. 
Don't extract it and place it somewhere else. If you do harm to your faith. And now we finally, as preacher quick, we finally arrive at the conclusion. The conclusion is going to be in three parts. I won't cover all of them today. You can thank me later. He opens his conclusion with this passage. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Were there other places we could have turned in the middle of the Pacific? Would we have gotten home? We could have just kept going north, and eventually we would have probably run into something in the Aleutian Islands, or missed something in the Aleutian Islands and died somewhere in the Alaskan waters. We could have hung a left instead of a right. Let's not go to California. Let's see if California will be to the east. Let's let's not go the, the or let let's not go east like everyone says. They say go west when you want to go to California. Let's go that way. And see what we find. What if we decided to go south? Leave Hawaii and go south and see if you can find California. Are we going to find it? We look at this passage and we say, boy, this is awfully narrow-minded of you, God, putting a narrow gate for our entry. You know what this is simply saying? There's no other way home. There's just one way home. The bridge is out in all the other directions. There's no there there. There's no option there. You can try to worship Baal and see if he'll answer your prayers. It's not going to happen. He's a rock. He's a stick. He's not helpful. You shall have no other gods before me. You know why? There aren't any. Don't make idols of God. Why? Because anything I can make is going to diminish who God is. This is not God saying, I'm restricting your options because I can do that because I'm God. This is God saying, there's no other way home. And I want you home. There is no other way to get home. And I want you to come home. Um, very often when I'm preaching, I pretest my sermon on the uh, high school kids that I, when I do chapel. So I stood in front of a group of high school kids yesterday. And I stood there looking at a bunch of fresh-faced teens thinking about the others that I'd seen over the 30-plus years I've been a pastor. Kids I've known since they were little. Some I've known in this church. Who thought they could find a better way. Who chose a different course. Or who found themselves off course and didn't even consider making a correction. And found themselves on the rocks somewhere. Hole in the boat. Life's sinking. And wondering how they got there. God is not being narrow-minded. Any more than the guy who wrote the chart that we were following, who designed the maps that we were looking at, was being narrow-minded when he said, this is where the Golden Gate Bridge is. He was just being honest. He was saying, this is the way home. 
This is how you get there. This is not an opportunity for a preacher like me to get up and, and, and beat on you with you got to fix it and you got to go right and you got to do the right thing because, you know, you're all going to burn if you don't. This is the Father saying this is the way home. This is the only way home. Go that way. This is Moses in Deuteronomy saying, I'm offering you today blessings, curses. Life, death. Choose life. This is Joshua at the end of his life looking out over the the, the hordes of Israel saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. This is every prophet in Scripture coming to that point where he's saying, you got an option, guys. Choose the right one. They're not doing it out of narrow-minded meanness. They're doing it because there's only one way home. It says, few there are who find it. It takes effort to find it. It takes quite a bit of effort. We could have easily gotten lazy about those noon shots. A lot of times it was tough because... It'd be kind of cloudy at noon and you're trying to spot the sun through the clouds and follow that brightest spot and see if that makes sense. Three times while we were traveling, we passed ships. And each time, or they passed us, maritime rules say that if you come come upon a boat in the ocean, you're to check in and see if they're okay. We had put a radar reflector on the mast of this boat that made us look a lot bigger than we were because we didn't want anybody to miss us in the night and create a shipwreck that we would be the end product of. And so regularly, a boat would come over the horizon. Seeing, us, seeing, the, seeing this blip on their screen, maritime rules say, go see if that blip's okay, And they would come over the horizon. And every time they came over the horizon, they would ask the same questions. Are you okay? Do you have any needs that we can help you with? We would ask the same thing every time. Can you tell us where we are? Because we had been taking our shot, looking at the moon, or looking at the, the, the sun every day. Moonshot's harder, by the way. We had, we had our little X's on our chart. We thought we knew where we were. But we wanted somebody who had better equipment to help us out. Spiritually, it's the same. There are people who are further along and have better equipment. We asked for ice cream once. They didn't send us that. We asked the U.S. Navy where we were, and they said no. They said, we will call you in a little bit and tell you where you are. What we said to all of these ships was, if you just give us your location, it'll be close enough. I mean, we can see you. And the Navy said, no, we will not give you our location. And they went over the horizon. By the way, before the Navy showed up, Two F-14s buzzed us, going and coming. 
And so they disappeared over the horizon. A couple hours later, they called us back on the radio and said, you are exactly here. God will place people in your life to help you with course corrections so you can find your way home. Don't ignore them. Now, there are false prophets. We'll get to that next week. But if what they're telling you aligns with Scripture, pay attention. Pay attention. There are a few who find it because not everyone's looking for it. And the question we have to ask day after day of ourselves Am I really looking for it? Do the choices I'm making today indicate that that's true? Do the deepest parts of my heart demonstrate that to me? And if not, you simply make a course correction. You don't get thrown out of the family for being off course. You get invited to a course correction. So now, preacher quick. Finding the gate. Aligning with Jesus' sermon, because that's what this is about, right? This is about the sermon Jesus just preached. This is the conclusion of the sermon he just preached. Seek to have a heart like God. Seek to live on a stage built only for God. Seek a relationship with God. As your life's primary goal. You'll have secondary goals and ancillary goals, lots of those, but your primary goal, primary goal is to follow Jesus. Primary goal is to end up at home with Dad. Practice, trust, not worry. Ben, Brenda's in my uh, text for this year. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving. God, bring those things to God. Bring that to God. Practice trust, not worry. Recognize your inadequacies, not your neighbor's. Recognize your own inadequacies. Don't practice picking nits from your neighbors. Jesus' comical description, before you seek to help your brother get the speck of dirt out of their eye, take that big giant log out of yours. Demonstrated that one day here in the church. Whacked a lady in the front row, actually I think second row, with the logs. Still feel bad about it. When you recognize your spiritual poverty, knock on God's door. He'll open it. If you find it, because there's so few looking, when you know the way, 
help point someone else to the gate. It would be a sorrowful thing for us to make it through the gate having never pointed anyone else to it. Let's pray.